Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, a production of PolicyForum.net and it comes to you from Crawford School of Public Policy. We're Asia and Pacific's leading graduate policy school, so you absolutely should come and study with us. We've got a wide range of degrees available for you, from graduate certificates to master's programs across policy topics, including applied economics, development, environmental management, and much more. Check us out at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. We'd love to see you here. Now, we're still learning many new things about the novel coronavirus, but one thing has become increasingly clear. The impact of COVID-19 will be with us for years to come. The Reserve Bank of Australia just released its latest quarterly set of forecasts, and whilst it's now expecting that the economic recession won't be as steep as initially feared, the country might instead be looking at prolonged, ultra-weak economic growth. And one group that will likely be significantly impacted from this are the young. Looking at recent unemployment numbers, it's clear that this group has already been hit hard. The unemployment rate for those aged between 20 and 24 reached 13.9%, with almost 150,000 jobs disappearing since the beginning of the year. And in a recent report, Australia's Productivity Commission painted a bleak picture for younger Australians, warning that due to the COVID-19 economic crisis, people in their 20s and 30s could become trapped in low-paying, low-skilled jobs for years. The report found that young people were disproportionately affected by poor job outcomes during the decade following the global financial crisis, and that the coronavirus crisis might leave an even bigger economic scar. So on today's episode, we are asking, how can policymakers minimise this long-term economic scarring on younger Australians from the COVID-19 crisis? And we have a brilliant panel of experts here with us uh, to tackle this question. First of us, joining us from Sydney, I believe, is uh, Professor Ariadne Vroman. She is the Sir John Bonting Chair of Public Administration, and she's the Deputy Dean of Research at the Australia New Zealand School of Government. Hello, Ariadne. Hello, happy to be here. And welcome back to Professor Bob Gregory. He is an Emeritus Professor in the Research School of Social Sciences. Hello, Bob. Hi. And hello once again to Professor Matthew Gray, who is the Director of the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. Hello, Matthew. Hi. Well, thank you to the three of you for joining us today. Uh, Now, Australia's economic outlook is 
Not great, but it is far better than many other countries. Uh, Prior to the coronavirus crisis, Australia had avoided the worst impacts of the global financial crisis, for example, and had 28 consecutive years of economic growth. Australian gross government debt in 2017 was much lower than the OECD average. And the Australian government, of course, has access to borrowing at pretty low costs right now. But despite that, the impact from the coronavirus crisis is going to be long-lasting and significant. And some experts are warning of the impact of economic scarring on younger generations brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. Matt, let me start with you. What do we actually mean by economic scarring? And how is it likely to affect young people over the course of their lives? So generally, economic scarring means that people have um, some adverse labour market outcome, um, can't get a job or they can't get the sort of job they've trained for, uh, often due to an economic downturn, but it could be due to uh, other factors as well. And then uh, not sort of getting that entry into the labour market uh, can lead to longer term poorer outcomes, um, can lead to long term unemployment, or it can mean that people don't get the types of jobs and the job trajectories that they would have got if they'd had a, a better start in the labour market. Uh, and these effects can last uh a long time. Um, you know, unemployment is quite a common experience for young people and in of itself often it doesn't have a scarring effect but uh, there is evidence that um, you know, prolonged periods of unemployment or entering the labour market in periods of um, uh, slow, uh, harder economic times can have lasting effects on cohorts of young people. And when we talk about lasting effects and for years to come, what, what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about five years, ten years? How long does this economic scarring actually play out? Uh, certainly, I think there's evidence that uh, it can be a number of years, uh, certainly up to ten years and probably uh, longer. It gets hard to um, really pick up the longer term effects and to attribute them to that very early initial experience. Uh, but yeah, there's pretty clear evidence of long-term effects and not just economic. Um, so it can also uh, have effects on you know, mental health, entering the housing market, forming relationships, having children, uh, all the other sort of important life course transitions that typically happen in people's 20s and increasingly into their early 30s. I mean, federal and state governments in Australia have put in place hundreds of billions of dollars of support for those who have been immediately affected by the coronavirus crisis. But in your view, Matthew, are they doing enough to counter this kind of long-term effect? Well, I think it's very early days, um, COVID-19 was a really unanticipated shock. Um, There's been a massive, uh, due to social distancing um, and uh, physical distancing, has led to closing down of um, a lot of economic activity and that's had very uh, major negative economic effects. Uh, And uh, the the, the view of the government's been that it's very important in Australia and in many other countries has been, A, that you have to try and support businesses and try and stop them going uh, broke. But secondly, that you don't want to have mass disengagement from the labour market. So um, in Australia, as in other countries, there have been efforts to help uh, people employed uh, to stay um, basically connected to their employer through the job keeper payment. Uh, Some of those people are working. Uh, Some are working reduced hours. Some are apparently not working much at all if there's not work to be done. Um, So it's very hard to say whether they're doing enough or or too much. It depends a lot on what happens with COVID-19 and um, to what extent. um, There's a lot of uncertainty about it. And I think that in some levels, we're acting in a precautionary way, uh, trying to envisage the worst case outcome. Uh, if there were effective treatments or vaccination, then um, there'll be longer lasting economic effects, but not as bad as if we have to remain borders closed, um, you know, significant uh, restrictions. Uh, and I think that we've been uh, certainly is evidence from previous recessions, uh, the early 90s recession, there was uh, quite a big growth in long-term unemployment, which Bob has um, done quite a lot of work on. Um, and I think the view is that you, know, you really have to do everything you can to try and prevent people becoming long-term disengaged from the labour market, particularly young people. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to sort of say a couple of contextual things. Uh, the first thing I would say is that we haven't had a serious recession for 30-odd years. And so it's very hard to know exactly how bad this will be for different groups of people. Uh, 
But it now looks, in my view, that it will be as serious as any recession we've had in the, in the post-war period. And the most important point that flows from that is that it'll be the recession itself affecting everybody one way or another rather than scarring of particular people. So I'll give you an ex- a little example, which is uh, if you look at 50-year-olds who entered the labour market at the depth of the 1990 recession, say, and 48-year-olds who did not, you know, then you can't see any real difference between, on average, between 48-year-olds and 50-year-olds. So, so scarring, by and large, goes away for most people. Right? For most people, what really matters is the recession itself. Right? Um, so that's important to bear in mind. So the, most, the biggest threat to young people today is not that they will be scarred per se, but that recession will be deep and last a long time. So to put that in sort of context, if you had a boom year in three years' time, then everything would more or less be forgotten in some sense, right? It sort of resets itself. Yeah, but of course we're not going to have a boom. So it's going to be the length of the recession that, that, that makes the, uh, the big impact. And uh, it's possible to be very pessimistic about that. And the second thing I think which is really important to talk about is not young people, but which groups of young people. So by and large, if you're an unskilled worker uh, looking for a a life which essentially is going to be an unskilled worker's life, then you just lose work. You know, you don't move down job ladders or anything. Uh, If you're at the top of the distribution, in some sense, say a university graduate, then... um, the scarring was likely to take the form, not that you're going to lose work so much, but you may end up in a, in a job starting, which is different from otherwise. But there's a lot of variation here. Uh, for example, on the way in, and my experience is not typical, but on the way in, I was thinking about one person I know who's just got three job offers, all of which starting salaries are really quite, quite high. Uh, I was just talking to another, one of my students just got a job offer. Uh, so not everybody's going to be scarred, as it were. And I think one of the things that's happened to Australia today is that it's a bit easier to avoid scarring than it was 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, and I say that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is that it's easier to enter education at an, at an older age than it used to be, right? You know, a long time ago, if you dropped out at 17, that was it. You couldn't come back, by and large. And nowadays, you can't come back. Uh, it's also easier to start jobs later in life and do reasonably well. We see a lot of married women, for example, starting later and doing well. So the economy, in some sense, is a little easier in that sense, except for the general depressing effect. Uh, putting that aside, it has been generally true for decades now that young people are finding it harder and harder in the labour market and their major adjustment on average has been to up their education level. So people are staying at school longer and longer. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is that if you leave school at the end of the fourth year, it's pretty easy to sort of go to the fifth year. Or if you go to the fifth year, it's pretty easy to go to the sixth year. Uh, What's happened now is we have so many people going to the sixth year that you've got to now jump into another institution, you know, and, and you've got to trans, transfer into a university or a tertiary education. That's a bigger step, and, and I've wondered in part whether education will absorb as many as young people in the future as it, as it did in the past because you can see it very, very clearly. Every time there's a recession, young people stay in school longer, and I just don't know whether that's coming towards some sort of natural limit. Well, I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the policies that have been put in place around education a little bit later. But Ariadne, let me bring you in here. Bob mentioned there about the different impacts for different groups. What are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I think it's really important that we sort of disaggregate this idea of young people. While I think overall young people are going to suffer more during this particular recession, there are differences amongst them which are based on demographic factors such as um gender and class and ethnicity in particular, but also the kind of occupations that young people are concentrated in. Even if we just look at the COVID effect, young people 
are the majority of workers in fast food, hospitality, retail and the arts, all industries that have either shut down altogether or um, decreased dramatically in what they're able to do. So it's kind of that immediate effect for, for young people losing their jobs or losing hours of work. So where our young people are concentrated and then when we might think about women in particular, which is um, part of my own research on uh, young women and the future of work, is the kind of gender segregated workforce we really still have in Australia with women concentrated in more feminised industries such as nursing, care work, you know, childcare, aged care, all of the kind of pointy end of the labour market that are that have been facing COVID. Um, first on as well. So I think we need to kind of talk about those differences, the different kind of experiences young people have, and then I guess we need to have that broader conversation about intergenerational equity as well. Now, I'm glad there that you mentioned the impact it is having on women because, you know, various pieces of research have told us about that. You know, it became quite apparent early on that women were being particularly hard, hit hard by uh, the coronavirus crisis, you know, and that's coming from, you know, the fact that women are working mm. in jobs that require face-to-face interactions or more likely to work in the informal yeah. sector or they tend to do more unpaid household work than men. I mean, taking the long-term view, how is what's happening likely to affect young women into the future? Well, Again, it's on multiple levels that I've been thinking about this, about how young women are going to be affected. I mean, we've got educated young women. Young women are um, more likely to go on to university. University is getting more expensive and there isn't necessarily a job pathway out of their university study. So there are a group of young women who will be facing um, those kinds of future of work insecurities. And then um, they're thinking much more about that trade-off between uh informal work or unpaid um, labour in the home. And we're seeing a lot of talk about women dropping their hours or dropping out of work altogether because they've got to be, they're taking on that responsibility much more than often their male partners to um, look after children at home who aren't able to go to school and doing the homeschooling work and so on. So all of that is quite a kind of confronting, um, I guess, shift in the way we might be thinking about gender equity as well. It's just sort of interesting in a way, right? Because um, mm. if you look at all the previous recessions, uh, it's unambiguously been the men that have been knocked around. Right? Because yeah. previous recessions are all about building industry downturns, manufacturing unskilled downturns. Women have always done much better in previous recessions. And they've done much better purely because of the point that Ariadne is making. That is, that they were in the jobs, by and large, which weren't recession sensitive, right? Uh, this time around, because of the strange nature of this this recession, it, it's all shifted, right? Uh, and so I think that that is an interesting point. That, uh, but then if you're thinking about scarring, the question is, if you look ahead, you know, and you were say relatively unskilled or moderately unskilled, would you rather be in a service sector than in building and manufacturing? Right? So I think. The long-term implications for women in the labour market, my guess is, and this is debatable, my guess is the long-term implications look better than for men. Uh, It's just that in the short run, in this particular cycle, it may not be true. So you just take aged care, for example. I mean, women who, say, work in aged care... uh, have been knocked around in this recession, not because they've lost their job per se, but because of health reasons. But, you know, in the long run, aged care looks fine. You know, it'll be a growth growth industry. Uh, so I think you've got to separate to some degree the, the short-term story and, and the long-term story. Yeah, I do agree with that. But then the biggest industry really is not either um, aged care or sort of building and manufacturing, but it's retail and hospitality. Yes. And um, these are huge uh, sectors within our sort of service economy and that's where women are working in retail and that's where their hours are being reduced, where they're not secure jobs, really high levels of casualisation. And also because of that, there's a, you know, there's a lot less choice available for um, for young people to sort of shape what their futures are going to look like, what their careers are going to look like because of that kind of the insecure nature of that kind of work. But I don't think, I mean, 
I sort of agree with that. But I don't think they're scarring industries. You know, that if you well, wanted to work in retail, uh, say, and uh, most retail workers are either part-time or, or not permanent, uh, then the recession at this moment means you, it's hard to get a job. But I don't think it's going to scar you. So when the economy recovers and you want to go to retail, uh, retail jobs will be shrinking, of course, uh, but you won't be scarred per se. Scarring sort of suggests that, uh, like my father-in-law, you know, I wanted to be a doctor in 1931, but I had to go to work at 16 to support the family. That sort of idea, you know, something that's been taken away from you on, on a sort of fairly permanent or long-term process. And yeah. and a lot of the cost to, to women and young people is the loss of part-time jobs. I mean, they're the ones that have really been knocked around in many ways, right? Because, yeah, because they and, and, and it's not clear that if you don't have a part-time job between 20 and 23 or how much that will actually scar you. I think the scarring comes about when you can't enter a job in some sense that was more permanent, like a university job, for example. If you have a PhD, if you yeah. graduate with a PhD this year, the chances you're going to end up in a university career have got permanently have got to be much lower. So that would be scarring. Yeah, you know. and yeah, 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 totally. I totally agree. But I also think, I mean, we have to kind of think about what is work going to look like in the future? Is this phase going to really um, mm. cement in the kind of normalisation mm. of, of insecure work? Like who, where are the policies going to come from to, I mean, create work with better conditions, more security, more possibility of mobility for young people? I mean, I think what we're starting to see is that young people think that part-time job in, in retail is temporary, but it's not going to be temporary. It might be their lifetime form of work. Um, and that's going to have all sorts of flow-on effects that were mentioned before around how do you start a, you know, how do you start an independent life? How do you move out of your, of your parents' home to start with? Um, how do you, you know, find a partner, have children, um, build that kind of life? And I, I, I just think this moment is going to put those kind of mm. life course decisions yeah. into starker starker relief. One of the interesting things at, at the moment is that if you look at income change, um, there have been increases in household incomes right up to the midpoint of the income distribution. So overall, there's been a drop in household income. But those drops are basically falls at the top end of the income distribution, not at the bottom end. And that's due mm. in part to um, the increase in the job seeker payment, but also job keeper. So quite a lot of young people have actually had increases in income. Uh, and we do find that um, this sort of financial stress hasn't gone up as much as you might uh, expect. But in terms of mental health, young people have had, um, there's been really quite dramatic increase in the experience of um, psychological yeah. distress, severe psychological distress. And I think it's very uncertain what the longer term outcomes of that will be. If uh, things, you know, the economy, if we get COVID under really under control in Australia and the economy starts to open up and they can go back face to face to um, university, school children, you know, outside of, yeah, you know, Victoria can't go to school at the moment, depends what happens elsewhere. Mm. So, in part, I think what the long term consequences of that, um, and most people will be fine. Uh, and I think there's a discussion earlier about people who are going to be vulnerable, will be people who are, uh, not doing you know, low education. Um, we know from what happened in 2008, even though the GFC had a pretty mild effect on the Australian economy, uh, there was falls in young people's employment, uh, but also uh, Indigenous employment. There's been no real growth and um, virtually all of the growth in Indigenous employment uh, amongst people who have um, identified as being Indigenous since the 2011 census. If you look at those who identified as Indigenous in 2011, they've had falls in employment right through to uh, 20, well, certainly 2016 and arguably beyond the data sort of gets a bit rubbery beyond the census. So there are certain groups who um, are going to be particularly vulnerable. That's right. That's, that is, now, one of the points that's been raised is that you – policies you're talking about, right? And I, I want to talk about one particular group, you know, the job keeper, job seeker. Um, mm. If you rang me up in February and said to me that the government was going to spend the amounts of money they're spending now, not only would I have bet the house against it, but I may well have gone out and borrowed money to bet against it, right? I mean, 
the, the government response is absolutely extraordinary. And it's a little bit hard to figure out how they've reversed so dramatically. Remember, remember, if you go back to January, they're still talking about, you know, squeezing, getting their surpluses and all that sort of stuff. So one of the major issues on policy is whether they're going, how long they will be able to keep in place the job keeper, job seeker process. Uh, how long will they be able to keep that in place before all the old views about government policies come back? Uh, you could see that by sorry, sorry, I lost a lot of money in February. I bet the house not borrowed all this money. Uh, but then in in April, I'd learnt and I said, okay, uh, I'll borrow some more money, try and get the money back, and bet job keeper and job seeker will be over by September. <laughs> you know, or radically reformed. I'd lost money again, right? But but you you must wonder how long they'll be able to sort of continue to do this uh, before, you know, they start worrying a great deal about future government debt. Now, my own personal view is that they can hold these policies in place for, for quite a long time, but I think they, they're going to find, nevertheless, I think policymakers will find it hard to do that. And then once they pull out the rug in some sense, then we're going to see much bigger income falls and that's when things start to get really serious because the economy is not going to recover at the beginning of next year or, or soon. So there's that macro policy that I think is going to be really important. Well, let's take a quick break there because when I come back, I want to talk a little more about some of the policies that have been put in place and might be put in place to counteract that. And I, th I certainly think one thing we might have learned from that, Bob, is no never to take betting tips from you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's take a quick break there and uh, join us more for more after the break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Well, welcome back. I'm still here with Matthew Gray, Ariadne Vroman, and Bob Gregory. And now I want to talk a little more about how we counter some of the effects that we've actually talked about here. I mean, we've said already that the economic impacts of the pandemic have been unevenly distributed with industries like tourism, hospitality, for example, bearing the brunt. Um, and as a result, many Australians have lost work in the pandemic. Unemployment currently sits around 7.4%, uh, but according to the RBA, it's set to rise to about 10% by the end of the year. Uh, and as of July, there are 13 job seekers for every single job vacancy in Australia, and that's undoubtedly a situation that's going to get worse. But that surely paints a pretty bleak picture for young people that there are 13 people going for every single job. Is there, are there steps that government or even employers could take to make the situation a little better for young people? Just before the, the break, I came out with a fairly strong view, I thought. Uh, and you know, don't trust me because I, I lost the house and all that money. But, but I think that in some sense, in a year's time, in a year and a half time, the policy options available for young people will probably be worse than they are now because I just think that they'll tighten up on JobKeeper and JobSeeker. I just don't see how they'll avoid that. And then I don't see them putting anything else in place that's going to have a substantial effect. Um, so it be interesting to see where the other people 
agree with it. Matthew agrees and Ariadne agrees with that because that is a pretty gloomy view, isn't it, in a way? Well, let's bring you in, Matthew. What, what's your view, view on that? I mean, it's a real question is whether the scarring effects and long-term uh, significantly worse outcomes for young people are inevitable or not. Um, and I agree with Bob that it's going to be difficult to see governments, um, Australian government, sustaining the level of expenditure uh, longer term. Uh, I mean, I think I'm not an expert on public finances, but I expect that they can sustain it for longer than people uh, think in terms of the borrowing because Australia's um, government debt is not high by international standards. Uh, but there will be the political dimension of that is going to be very hard. Um, and one of the things that's happened has been that there have been big increases in payments, but they've also taken away some of the rich obligation requirements, the requirements for people to look for work. Um, and so you do see that, for example, a lot of the women who've lost jobs uh, are, are not looking for work. They've withdrawn from the labour market. Um, and that's perfectly understandable. Um, it might be busy um, with caring responsibilities and so on, but also there's not many jobs to be had. So I think that there's going to be a real challenge about at what stage governments start to reintroduce the activation policies, um, which have been found to be quite successful um, you know, across OECD countries. Uh, and there'll be a question about to what extent governments are going to be punitive. Um, I mean, my view is that um, Australian government's been relatively punitive to people in difficult circumstances, unemployed and, and so on in recent well, certainly um, in recent decades, I would say. Um, so there'll be questions about how we draw that line about, you know, the mutual obligation, um, activation type policies, um, you know, the work disincentives that might come from the quite high uh, payment rates. And it's going to be... Um, it's going to be a real challenge, and there's going to be a real challenge about to what extent you know, we have an aging population. Uh, so, in some ways, that ought to create an opportunity for younger workers. Uh, the, aging, the population is aging, uh, structural aging is occurring, and it ought to increase the, um, uh, the the job opportunities for younger people. So, I think our challenge is going to be trying to find a way because we can't, as a society, have an entire generation that's going to uh, well, a significant part of an entire generation that's going to feel very disaffected. And that, that is ultimately dangerous for uh, Australian society. Um, people have to feel that society does something for them, that they have a stake in society. Otherwise, you end up with what you're seeing in other countries happening. Ariadne, what's your view? I know Matthew talked about we, you know, we have to find a way to do this. What's your view? What is, what is that way? Yeah, I think that was actually a really good point. Um, you know, placing this in a sort of a broader social context about what kind of society do we want to be living in and what kind of society do we want young people to be, you know, active participants within is really important. And even, um, you know, when I t sort of take hope in the moments of some of the conversations that are having, like that we're finally having a conversation about the damaging effects of insecure work just in terms of people not having sick leave when they might, you know, be getting tested for, for COVID. That conversation's been really important and really sort of shone a light on those industries where that insecurity has been rampant from the security industry to um to aged care work and i think that we're having those conversations as a society about what we expect from works really important and that will be important going into the future but i also think we need to be thinking a lot more about our education system particularly our vocational education system which has really been underfunded and um, suffered from, I guess, the sort of uh, increase in fees and privatisation in the last 10 to 20 years. And that was something I wanted to say to, about Bob's comments earlier on about the early 90s recession. The early 90s recession, there was so much more focus on job creation, on-the-job training and vocational education that just doesn't exist anymore in, um, you know, 30 years later. And those sorts of systems, I think we need to be thinking about how do we bring them back and how do we not focus on the individualised responsibility of young people to go out there, get into debt, get more training, get more education for jobs that aren't there? So how do we also focus on that, bringing government and industry together to really think much more about job creation and creating good jobs into the future as well? And I don't see that conversation on the government's agenda yeah, yet. Yeah. I think JobKeeper in a lot of ways has kind of been really important. I agree with what Bob and Matthew have said. It's been important that the government stepped in and did that. But it's only a Band-Aid for now because yeah. once it's gone, there will be industries that will never come back and never exist as they were before. So how do we have that bigger conversation about the future of work and the future of um, government 
policymaking and industry responsibility for job creation. I, I think this future of work discussion is important. I agree completely with that uh, because the economy is just changing dramatically compared to the past. Mm. So even without, you know, this downturn, uh, you can see quite clearly in the data, increasingly we're moving towards part-time sort of work, right? Uh, yeah. And part-time work, which most people who have part-time work want, you know, that it fits into their life. If it's, if, uh, if it's secure we, part-time work. Well, it's, work. I'm not yeah. sure, about, sure about that either uh, in the sense that a lot of people in, at some stage of their life, you know, like to dip into part-time work. You know, the students, mm. the classic example, school children are another. Sometimes when you have young children, you know, uh, is another. So... We do need to have this discussion. But when I look at the recessions, it's not clear which way they're going to go. So if you think of the 75, 76, 74, you know, the Labor government and the the bad times there, the the government response was to extend welfare, you know, to make things more generous Uh, and to make things easier for people who are disadvantaged. The 91 recession was quite the opposite, you know. That is, once the 91 recession had sort of, after a year or so, the whole process was to wind back all the welfare programs. So for people on the bottom, they, in some sense, and I'm using bottom in, you know, people who access government welfare one way or another, they gained from one recession, the 75, and then they lost from the 91 recession. Uh, and they lost as all these programs were being clawed back, and Matthew's talked about that. But they also lost, and this is really the interesting point, they lost because of the scarring thing that Matthew was mentioning because one of the things that happened in the 91 recession is when the economy recovered, uh, a lot of the unemployed became long-term unemployed. And so, the, yeah. And, yeah. and a lot of new entrants did well. So the view spread throughout the community was that times are really good except for the long-term unemployed. Now, why aren't times good for them? Well, they're not looking hard enough. <laughs> you know, they're not working, not looking hard enough for jobs. So in that recession, you could argue that bad things came out of it. Right? Uh, now, that might happen again. And, and the reason why I'm a bit worried about it happening again is that while there's no real, in my view, any economic worry about the size of government debt, the size of borrowing, I just do worry that the governments will start trying to cut back once the recovery starts, right? And that cutting back inevitably extends, I think, to people who are disadvantaged. So the conversation that Ariadne is talking about, I think is really important. Maybe it's important to start now, but it's really going to bite in some sense in, in two years' time, yeah. three years' time, I think. So I want to pick up on one thing that was that was sort of briefly touched on there, which is around sort of the uh, particularly around the university sector. Um, in June, the OECD warned that the scarring effects of unemployment, especially for young workers, is a situation that needs to be alleviated through education and training. And of course, the Australian government has introduced a policy they've. They've talked about changing the fee structures for university courses and halving the fees for some and more than doubling uh, for other programs with a view to sort of sort of gearing people towards uh, degrees that make them job ready. Um, Ariadne, what are your thoughts on that? Is that an effective way to help young people to get back on their feet in this crisis? Well, I have, yes. Unsurprisingly, I have many thoughts on that. Um, look, I mean, we also should be thinking about universities themselves as employers. We're going to see universities contract by probably at least 10% of their staff and they've already been places where a large proportion of the workforce are precariously employed in casual casual work. That's the sort of casual, um, casual teaching, casual professional staff has been what's been keeping universities going. So they're naturally not great employers in of themselves and that this period is getting us to think about that as well. But also that focus on saying that universities need to make young people job ready kind of and doing part of that is sort of changing the fee structures and individualising those choices again for young people 
really sort of takes the eye off the ball about, well, where are those jobs and where are those jobs actually coming from? You can't just expect young people to sort of increase their debt, increase their education that they're attaining. And I think that point was made earlier earlier on as well, that even the sort of entry level into the job market has been ratcheting up over the last 20 or 30 years. You can't, you know, you have to either have finished school, have a degree, have vocational qualifications. So I think we're going to see those expectations for entry-level jobs um, ratcheting up about how much education people have, but not necessarily producing those clear-cut pathways from university into an actual job. And that's, again, why we need to think about who is creating those jobs, what is industry's responsibility now for um, thinking about on-the-job training too. We don't seem to be bringing industry in as a partner in this conversation as much as we should be. Matthew, can I bring you in here? You're the director of a school. What are your view on the sort of changes to universities? I mean, at one level, I think that it's a perfect legitimate of government to say that they wish to try and increase the um, number of students in certain areas. Um, there's a significant public subsidy that's going in, but I'm not sure that the measures that are proposed are going to achieve that. Uh, my colleague Andrew Norton's talked about this quite a lot. On the one hand, uh, there is a financial incentive uh, for students to take certain types of courses and not others, which is changing. Uh, on the other hand, the incentives for universities are going to be to offer places in exactly the courses where the government doesn't necessarily want the growth. And there's a big question about how price-sensitive students' choice is going to be, given that um, yeah, you know, it's a deferred payment through the hex payments and and also the student loans and and also if they've got a view that they might not end up ever doing any good in the labour market, well then, yeah, what does it matter? You know, because you're not going to pay it back. So I think that in an element, you know, there's a big question mark over how price sensitive they're going to be. I mean, my personal view is that. Um, university shouldn't really be about, be about vocational training. It's about um, giving people general. Uh, skills which are transferable. Um, obviously, there are some areas like medicine and so on which are quite specific. Yeah. So, yeah, I've got some sort of mixed views about it. Um, there is some, arguably some evidence that you know, uh, we may end up over-educating our population to some degree uh, and uh, what's happening at the moment is likely to increase that because students will be more likely to go on to university and will get higher retention rates at university, I think, just because their outside options are are so much less. And so we could end up with uh, quite a lot of uh, people, students. I mean, not just young people, students, but predominantly young people who are going to be quite disappointed because they've been trained and had uh, an education for which it's going to be very hard to find jobs for which, uh, which are appropriate to those skills. Now, of course, education is not just about the labor market. It can make people better parents. It can make them better volunteers and, and citizens. So it's not just a, a productivity argument, but that is, um, uh, fundamentally important part of the university sector. It's I, I, I have um, some views on this. Um, if I was making a list of all the things that mattered for education at this time, then I think playing around with the fee structure at the university, I don't even think it's even on the list, you know. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's just – it's basically a silly idea really unless you want to raise a bit of money. <laughs> Right, so so I I'm not in, I'm not interested in that, um, but I want to respond to two things that uh, Ariadne said. The first one is right on the top of the list, which is if you think about Australia as a whole, you've got to worry about the gap between the school and the university. It's all these other institutions mm. that she's talking about, you know, um, the and training on the job, and and the reality is we just seem to know very little about that. What we do know is that for all my life, we've been saying, oh, we have to make do better. And uh, I don't think we've done any better. Uh, it just doesn't – we just don't seem to really get our act together on that. But I think as people stay on longer and longer and longer, you've got to ask the question whether, you know, you want 100% of Australians who are 24-year-old doing my graduate course. I know the answer to that, <laughs> which is no, right? Uh, but you may want a large fraction of 24-year-olds involved in education in some way. And that way is not going to, should not really be necessarily in higher level education. It's got to be somewhere else, not, not in universities. That's the first point. And I don't know what we do about that. The second point, which will make me unpopular in a little bit, is that I think of 
say the top quality universities like the same way I think of football teams and having career in movies. That is that it's the very nature of the top places that there's high turnover because, you know, so many people want to get in. So I see a lot of the temporary work around the top quality universities as just the nature of the beast. That's the first point. And I think that's inevitable. You know, when I get a job at Harvard, my first job, you know, everybody knows that you're not going to stay at Harvard. You know, you're temporary. Because otherwise, Harvard would clog up and it would no longer be Harvard. Uh, so that's the first point. And the second point is that universities are going to be tight for money. And let me tell you, the part-time people, we really get them cheap. We really get them cheap. Uh, and they accept that. Uh, so in economics, uh, these part-time people are using that process as a part of funding their graduate courses. So if we, re if we replace them with permanent positions, then all the finance for new PhDs during their course would disappear for us. So I think you've got to realise that in the best of places, you're going to expect lots of turnover. And I think today the universities with part-time teaching are better because, you, see, when I went to university, this was the choice. I got a scholarship, which was very hard to get, or I had no money. You know, I could, whereas now, if I go to a university, I can come to ANU, I get you know, a PhD, they'll offer me teaching. You know, uh, and so I can finance my degree in the university. But I'm clearly a part-time, somewhat low-paid person. But that's a part of uh, my investment strategy. And it lets me into the university where... When I was young, I couldn't have done that. Silence. Can I, can I, 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 no, I'm totally happy to um, dis respectfully disagree with Bob on that. I think that observation is correct. But what's happening for university um, work for early career researchers for young people um, is that that period extends well beyond their PhD candidature now. They'll spend the sort of three or five years post-PhD patching different um, casual jobs or different contracts together, often across several different universities, to try and create a life, often doing their research work um, unpaid because those jobs are teaching-focused, to try and get that first leg up on the ladder. And I think this sort of broader workforce development strategy, a lot of universities don't think about it. Maybe it's more likely to happen in the in the sort of elite group of eight universities where I've been lucky enough to spend my whole career, but in other universities, it's that discussion isn't happening. And I think that that this moment is also challenging us to think about that. We're talking about universities in a fundamentally different way in the kind of broader public discourse now, both in terms of what we expect them to be doing. Um, teaching the next generation, doing the research to come up with the vaccine, but also, um, the, you know, as employers as well, you know, a large sector of the workforce that weren't eligible for JobKeeper. So all of these questions are coming up now and I think that we can do so much better and I think we really do owe the next generation of academics, the next generation of early career researchers, a real pathway into work. It's sort of a and that's my um, yeah, my little well, bit of my high thoughts. Um, we should have a fight, huh, to make it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make it okay. fun. I, yeah, I tell sure. you what the problem is, right? <laughs> let's focus on the top eight universities, right? And let's suppose yep. that they're going to cut jobs by fifteen percent, which is exaggerating a little bit, right? Yeah, but that's, that's right. Very suppose real. that was real. Yeah. Then I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to fill those fifteen percent on January. Sorry, I'm going to get rid of people and then make what's there permanent, what's left is permanent. Then for every year afterwards, hardly anybody's going to get in unless somebody retires. So I am really, unfortunately, according to my colleagues, in the high turnover group. For the good universities, you've got to have high turnover. And what's happening for young researchers and their careers is that the number of people who want to get into the number of jobs far exceeds the number of jobs. And when that happens, people stay on longer, work harder, and that's true all around the world. Right? Uh, yeah. and, and that's not going to change. It's just going to get tougher. So where I think there is an important responsibility is, and, this is, and I think universities fail, is they don't tell the students properly. Right? 
You know, they, they hire them in and they don't really tell them that, you know, after six or seven years, you're not going to get a job here. You know, or after six or seven years, job is going to be hard. I don't think we do enough on explaining to people the reality of the situation. Uh, and I think that's a real problem for universities. Yeah, I think it's got to be a dual strategy, though. I think we, I agree, we do need to do um, that work with, and also maybe think about how many PhD students we even take on to begin with. And we need to be talking with them about alternative non-academic career pathways, but still great works in the public sector and industry and so on. So we need to be focusing there, but we also need to be thinking about, well, what does that secure pathway look like? So many people on research-only contracts, for example, go from contract to contract, particularly in in, um, in the sciences and in medicine, and we should do better there. But maybe we also need to be focusing on the other end as well. Um, when I sort of talk about intergenerational equity, I'm quite serious about we don't have a compulsory retirement age in Australian universities. Do we need to be thinking about revisiting policies like that? Do we need to be encouraging people to not stay in their jobs till they're well into their 70s if that means that they're blocking, you know, and they're often expensive professors and blocking um, jobs for postdoctoral or level B academics coming into the market? And that's probably one of my more controversial points of view that we should be having that conversation more as the average age of academics clearly is increasing over time as well. Ariadne, you're joining us from Sydney, so you can't say, but there were certainly some raised eyebrows around the table. So I do want to give a... <laughs> Should I, I announce, yeah, announce my I, age? I, 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 that one would be a bit fun. <laughs> I, I mean, in many ways, the discussion about the universities is a microcosm of um, the labour market. You know, you've got the top end, yes. the high end universities, and I think I'm, you know, you've got the other, I don't know, if t- they talk about a group of eight, we've got another 30 universities where... Yeah, and I think the rules should differ by the type and, of university. And so there's a very interesting uh, OECD speech uh, which basically said the OECD is a, a 4R strategy, which is really quite enlightened, I thought, for the OECD, which progresses from response and rehabilitation to reciprocity and resilience is needed to build a better, more robust and inclusive labour market. So the, the, the OECD now, which is, um, you know, I think, fairly dry economically, uh, is, is now talking about the need for you know, the vulnerable have been really hit by COVID-19 and it's showing up the real uh, fractures and the cracks in our systems and labour markets. And so they're talking about the need for a more robust and inclusive labour market, which uh, I think that's going to be the real challenge. And you know, there's two pathways we can take here as a society. Are we going to get a much more unequal and divided society or are we going to get a society that we think is more inclusive and fairer? Yeah, really good point. All right. So this has been a fascinating discussion, but we do need to draw it to a close. And in doing so, I'd just like to go around the table and get your view on what the single most important step that the Australian government could take right now to tackle some of the issues that we've talked about today. And Bob, you made the point that the role of government has been quite different in, over the course of 2020. And in fairness to you know, Scott Morrison and his colleagues, they have been quite nimble uh, in terms of adapting their stance, their policies to uh, the uh, effects that we're seeing playing out around the country. But perhaps, Bob, if I start with you, if you were advising Scott Morrison uh, today, what's what would be the first and most important step that you would ask him to uh, suggest that he take in order to tackle some of the issues that we've talked about today? Can I t- take two together? Uh, and, and they don't fit the conversation that well. Um, but the two things, maybe I'll take three. The first one is they really have to get into the infrastructure game much more because, you know, the economy is going to be very flat two, three years down the track. So they're being told that by the governor of the Reserve Bank. So that's number one. Two, which is very controversial, is I would say keep the immigration program as high as you can because um, a lot of the growth in the Australian economy, in my view, is based on the idea that we're adding 200,000 extra immigrants here a year. All the housing industry, a lot of the business is based on that. So that would be the second. And the third would be keep the government stimulus on JobKeeper, JobSeeker as long as you can. You know, don't let the debt frighten you. And they're my three propositions. Can I just uh, come back to you on that idea of uh, high immigration? Surely... Not high, not low, not not... Not reduce it a lot. 
But I think that's another problem. Sustained immigration yeah. then. Because I think, you see, the, the way I think of it is that if I'm running a business, I'm looking ahead and I'm looking ahead two years, three years, four years, five years. I need to know what the economy looks like ahead. And for a business that's selling things, one of the most important things is going to be the size of the domestic market. If you're building houses or units, it's self-evident. And I don't think we've, you know, I think there's a danger that we'll cut back too far on immigration. And that'll, that'll be itself a big adjustment downwards for the economy. I mean, I'm sure there would be some people listening to this that would say the crisis, as terrible as it has been, is also an opportunity for us to rethink the kind of yeah. economy and society that we want to live in yeah. and the sustained levels of immigration yeah. may well, well be part, be part of, of that I mix. Know, I know. But I just gave you my opinion. Matthew. All right, Matthew. Well, over to you for that question. <laughs> oh, it's a tough question. Um, I think we need to try and keep people connected to meaningful engagement and activity, whether that be in the labour market, in study, in volunteer work. Um, and how we do that is going to be really important and it's going to be very important for I think for governments to resist being uh, too punitive in dealing with people in difficult situations that we don't have, um, as Bob referred to earlier, uh, one of the argu arguably what happened after the ninety one um, uh, recession was that it became punitive and less caring towards those who, who, who suffer consequences. And so, how can we balance the need to create incentives uh, with also supporting people? And uh, I think that. The evidence is that the the uh, carrots are at least as important. You've got to get the right carrot to stick ratio, and the carrots are very important in order to get people to uh, recover and to um, uh, start to uh, uh, rebuild their lives. Who's going to be very adversely affected? All right. So Ariadne, the last word to you. You've got Scott Morrison's ear. I'm sure he's a regular yeah. listener of the podcast. What kind of <laughs> advice are you going to give to him? Um, well, I'm going to say we're all friends, and I totally agree with what both Bob and Matthew were saying then about you know, the labour market, but also keeping that safety net in and not being punitive. But I also think we need to take this moment as a political moment and to be fundamentally rethinking about how we do politics and how we do policy making in Australia. Some of the moments that have um, been inspiring have been those beyond ideological moments, such as the National Cabinet working together, the government working together with all of the state premiers to come up with solutions. That needs to continue, as does bringing a diverse range of voices into the policymaking tent from, you know, from unions, from industry, from the not-for-profit sector to actually come out with the policy solutions that are going to suit all Australians. And I think that sort of political moment is something we need to continue beyond partisanship, beyond, um, you know, mates games and ideology. Well, that sounds like a very positive and forward-thinking note to end this on. So this has been a really fascinating discussion. So I'd like to thank you, Ariadne. Thank you, Bob. And thank you, Matthew. Listeners, we want to hear your thoughts on what we've talked about today on the podcast or on any of our episodes of Policy Forum Pod. You can reach the team on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum. That's A-P-P-S Policy Forum. Or you can, of course, send us an email, go old school, podcast at policyforum.net. And we're also really keen to have you as part of the pod squad. That's our team of presenters, listeners to the podcast, and even some of our panelists. Our home base is on Facebook. You can find us there as Policy Forum Pod. And your membership also comes with a few perks, such as great discussions with other listeners and early access to our Ask Policy Forum podcast series. That's the podcast where you ask the questions from how policy can help tackle climate change to the team's favourite snacks for a road trip. We can't wait to welcome you there. And if listening to and discussing COVID-19's impact on the economy isn't enough for you, then you might want to consider studying with us here at Crawford School. Today, more than ever, what our leaders decide to do next really matters, and many of our best graduates go on to senior positions in government in Australia and all around the world. So if that's something that you envision for yourself, there really isn't a better place to study. If you're interested in helping build a better economy for future generations, check out our Master of Public Policy. You can find all the information you need on our website, crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study.
We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you do, you obviously want to hit subscribe and make sure that you get it into your pod player every week. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your favorite shows from. And please also leave us a review. We not only love hearing your feedback, it's also a great help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.